You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm Pastor Joey, and I hope what you're about to hear blesses you, increases your love and knowledge of Jesus, and answers any questions that you might have about Him. Today's reading is from the Gospel of John, chapter 13. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. 
So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you, love, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Thank you, Bob. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, Good to be with you. Go to John 13 if you haven't yet. That's where we are going to be this morning. So just to situate this story, where we're at in the story of John, where things are at uh, as of late. So Jesus, last week we saw, he he makes his exit from the crowds. He gives them one last um, invitation, one last declaration of who he is. The crowd still, although they've seen everything he's done, heard everything he's taught over the years, choose not to believe. And he departs, exits. And so now we've fast-forwarded five days from that event. This is on the eve of the Passover feast. And so Jesus is enjoying this last final meal with his best friends. And of course, after this is the crucifixion, the betrayal, the, the, uh, the judgment of Jesus, the crucifixion and the resurrection. So that's where we're going. But tonight, it's this last meal, right before the meal and then into the meal. That's what we're covering tonight. And as I was preparing for this sermon, of course, the, the main theme throughout this whole entire passage, and by the way, don't stress out, we're not going to cover every single verse that we just read. I'm going to do a, more of an overview this morning. But as I was preparing to, to study and understand God's love through Christ, that's what the theme really here is in this chapter, is this radical love of Jesus that he then charges us to embody ourselves. I, I wanted to understand how different this is, this kind of love from a deity, this kind of love from a God, it's, it's really radical. We've, we've become, uh, it's custom to us, but it, in this time, it's so radical. So I decided to do, just to do some research in the Greco-Roman gods this last week. And if you do some research, you'll find that the gods of Rome are cruel, abusive, selfish, and terrifying. So let me just highlight Zeus's mythology for you real quick. He punished Prometheus for giving humans fire because he generally disliked humans. He married a goddess named Metis and then killed her in favor of another goddess, Hera. But then he would frequently descend to the realm of humans to have sex with them. In one case, he took the form of a swan and raped a woman named Leda because he lusted after her and wanted her to have his offspring. And when Zeus did not choose to leave Mount Olympus to seduce humans... He was generally upset towards them and sent thunderbolts and creative punishments on them. That's who you're dealing with in the Greco-Roman times. These are your gods. 
These are the normal deities and divines of ancient times. Now, here's a question that's really interesting. Belief in that God, following that God, Zeus, worshiping that God, Zeus, and all kinds like him, what kind of person do you think that produces? What, what will that cultivate within you? What kind of character? Who will you become? Well, here, here's who you become. In 49 BC, Julius Caesar, he's standing on the edge of the Rubicon River, and if he crosses the Rubicon River into that part of Italy, he well knows it's going to be civil war. It's going to be just a, a destructive, tumultuous time for the empire. It's going to be, uh, it's going to result in fractions and divisions. And one historian in the time, Cicero, says this cause has everything but a cause. Meaning, there was no point for Julius Caesar to cross the Rubicon other than for his own legacy and for his own ego. That's the only reason why he would march in and create a civil war. And so one historian says, clearly Caesar was choosing to advance his personal interests, even if it meant enormous cost to others, and he crossed the Rubicon. As a result, many thousands died, the destruction of the Republic occurred, extensive property loss occurred, and ultimately he was assassinated. Belief in these kinds of gods who are selfish, self-interested, who are looking out only for themselves, it creates these kinds of people who look out only for themselves, what's in their best interest. And so that God and that kind of godliness is just starkly contrasted to the God who is revealed, the one true God who is revealed in Jesus. God shows that he is radical in love by Jesus getting down on his hands and knees to wash the filth of the feet of his students, even though he was their teacher and their master. So I'm not going to get into every single part of Jesus washing the feet in this story. I actually just want to read a part of what D.A. Carson, New Testament scholar and commentator, writes about this action that Jesus does of washing these feet, what it means culturally. He writes this, Doubtless the disciples would have been happy to wash his feet, They could not conceive of washing one another's feet, since this was a task normally reserved for the lowliest of menial servants. Peers did not wash one another's feet, except very rarely as a mark of great love. Some Jews insisted that Jewish slaves should not be required to wash women and children and people's feet. In one well-known story, when Rabbi Ishmael returned from the synagogue one day and his mother wished to wash his feet, he refused on the ground that the task was too demeaning. The reluctance of Jesus' disciples to volunteer for such a task is, to say the least, culturally understandable. Their shock at his volunteering is not merely the result of being shamefaced, It is their response to finding their sense of fitness of things absolutely shattered. Here, Jesus reverses roles. His act of humility is as unnecessary as it is stunning, and it simultaneously displays love, a symbol of saving cleaning, and a model of Christian conduct. The details are really revealing. Jesus took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist, thus adopting the dress of a menial slave, dress that was looked down upon in both Jewish and Gentile circles. And thus he began to wash his disciples' feet, thereby demonstrating his claim, I am among you as one who serves. Doubtless all the disciples were extremely embarrassed by these proceedings. Jesus reveals God's humble, scandalous, radical, and severe love. We just don't love like this. 
In our Western culture, our love is highly conditioned. It's on what you can do for me, what will I get out of return, what will this cost me. That does not run through Jesus' mind. He just gives and is willing to descend to the lowliest place to love his friends. So what we're going to do in, this, in chapter 13, okay, is we're going to trace that theme of love, this kind of Christian love that Jesus embodies and defines throughout this story and find all these different characteristics and study those characteristics. But sort of another, another framework to help us understand our study this morning is God, uh, Augustine, Church Father Augustine, he famously, famously said, God, now listen here, you need to pay attention, otherwise it's confusing. He says, God, command what you will and will what you command. Meaning, God, Tell us what you want. Command what you, command, command what you will. What pleases you. Now, God, will what you command. Help us do what you command. That's today. Jesus is going to show us what God expects of us, his people, his children. He expects us to love like Jesus loved, but also in this story we see the secret power behind that love, how we can actually do this, how you and I can actually live a life of love. Okay? So, before we begin, let's go ahead and bow our heads. That was a long introduction. You're welcome. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father God, we praise you for your love. We thank you that your love overcomes our sin, overcomes our guilt, overcomes our shame. You chose to love us. You set your love on us from eternity past. And so you've promised us your love. You're not going to leave us or abandon us or forsaken us. You love us even at our worst. You love us when we're dirty and filthy, when we've messed up time and time again. You still love us, and you never give up on us. God, I pray that this amazing love, this gospel love, this cross-shaped love would weigh down on us, would become real to us, and just catalyze us, God, to love our spouses, our children, our friends, our church family, those around us, our neighbors, the poor, those in need, those who are vulnerable. I pray, God, that we would be so moved by your tremendous love that we would just breathe it out, that we live a life of love. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So first characteristic of this Christian love, this radical love, is it releases and recalls. It releases and recalls. You'll see what I mean as we go through it. Start with me in verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover... When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world, underline the word world, he depart out of this world of the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, underline world again, he loved them to the end. Now, in the Gospel of John, he uses this word, world, say that ten times fast, frequently. And there's connotations of that word, world, and it's darkness, unbelief, hostility and opposition. The world is not a friendly place, yet that's where Jesus descends to and enters into and perseveres through against hostility, opposition, and unbelief. That's where Jesus goes. And it says that he saves some out of the world. So he ransoms people out of this darkness and out of this unbelief and out of this hostility. So first and foremost, Jesus enters hostile ground. Now, that's made more dramatic by verse 3. Go there with me. It says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from the Father and was going back to the Father, so that Jesus, 
enters into the darkness and hostility of the world is amplified by the reality of what he left, what he released. Jesus let go of everything he was entitled to to come to a place where he would be hated and opposed and killed. He left the comforts of heaven, the privilege of heaven, the realm and glory and love of heaven. Here's what one uh, uh, theologian says about the presence of God in heaven. Here's what it's like in heaven. This is what Jesus left. Love is in God as light is in the sun, as the great fountain of light. And from God, love flows out towards all the inhabitants of heaven. It flows out in the first place, necessarily and infinitely, towards who? Towards his only begotten Son. And the Son of God is not only the infinite object of love, but is also an infinite subject of it. He is not only beloved of the Father, but he infinitely loves him. The infinite essential love of God is, as it were, an infinite and eternal, mutual, holy energy between Father and the Son, a pure and holy act whereby the deity becomes, as it were, one infinite and unchangeable emotion of love proceeding from both the Father and the Son. What that means is that Jesus existed from eternity past in this deluge of love. He was just in perfect relationship with the Father, trading love back and forth. There is nothing better, isn't there, than being in a relationship where there's no hiding, no hesitation, but total reciprocity of love, open hearts to one another. That is the best day. And that's what Jesus enjoyed for all time, in the Father's presence. And that's what he released. He released that to enter into the human experience, to come to the world, <laughs> to the dirt, and to those of us who would never be grateful for him. Now, one more thing that just shows us just the humility of Jesus, what he released here. Look at verse 3 again. It says that Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, he, did, he then did what? Knowing that he had all authority and power, like all control of things were just granted to Jesus in this moment by the Father, he could have used that power and prominence to vanquish the devil. He could have used this power and control in this moment to just obliterate Judas. But instead he rose, takes off his outer garment, wraps a towel around his waist, and washes his disciples' feet. That's what he chooses to do with his power to get down on his knees and serve. So I hope you see what Jesus has released. This is what love looks like. This is the standard. It means leaving your comforts, leaving the things you're entitled to, leaving your rights and your privileges, and using your power and status to love other people. It's incredible. This is not how we love. And so this is what Ephesians, uh, sorry, excuse me, Philippians 2 says. It expounds on this. It explains this. It says, who, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in the human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, Jesus, he released his comforts and his rights in order to serve. That's what he uses his power to do. He released but Philippians 2, it keeps on going. And it shows us what was, what was the reward. 
What was on the other side of all of this? Philippians 2 keeps on going and it says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So Jesus releases all his rights and his privileges to serve because he knows that he is going to be exalted. He knows he is returning to that place of glory. As verse 3 says in John 13, 3, it says that he knew he was going back to God. He knows where he's going. He knows the reward. Look, it's, it's really easy to release your grip on your rights and your privileges and your power and your convenience. It's really easy to release that when you recall your reward, <laughs> when you know what's coming for you when you know what is waiting for you in the age to come, then it's easy to release your rights. How many of us here, and I better see like hands go up, how many of us here have started saving for retirement? Everybody better raise, if you haven't, financial advice, go ahead and do that. Max out that puppy, all right? Now, it's uncomfortable, right? Because in your 20s and your 30s, you need to start doing that. Uh, And it's going to mean that you're going to adjust your budget. You're not going to be able to do everything you want to do. You're going to have to save, right? But why? Why do you do that, especially when you're young? (laughs) It's because there is just like unimaginable dividends that come from saving when you're young. Decades in the future, you just can't imagine the kind of wealth that is going to accumulate over the years if you save and invest now and take those sacrifices now, pay those sacrifices now. In the same way, you and I, we have no idea how good it's going to be in the age to come. We know we'll be human, but immortal, without sin, and living in a world of love. The love that the Son left and then looked to and received when he ascended back to the Father, that's the love that we will know for all time. So imagine your best day on earth. (laughs) Imagine the happiest memory you've ever had in your life. It's just It pales in comparison to the age to come that awaits us. So every single sacrifice we make now, every single comfort, convenience that we release now to love other people, you will be rewarded for it. Every single loss you absorb now in the name of Jesus for the good of others, it will be returned to you exponentially. It will. And so listen, if you decide, yeah, I'm going to love like Jesus, I'm going to live a life of love. I'm committing to this from here on out. It's no longer about me. It's about them. It's about others. If you're ready to make that commitment and go for it and release your rights, that's a beautiful thing. It's so amazing because what you're telling God there is, God, I trust that what you have for me in the life to come is so much better than the things I could keep for myself now. To live this life of love it's a huge act of trust. You're saying that, God, I don't need these things. I don't need my pride. I'll swallow my pride. I don't need my money. I'll give it up. I don't need these resources. I'll give it up. I don't need these comforts and conveniences. I'll give it up because I believe, God, that you're going to exponentially return every cost I've made now. So true Christian love, it releases, but it also recalls at the very same time. Remember, August, Augustine says, God, command what you will and will what you command. God commands us to love like this, but also empowers us by reminding us of what's in store for us to come. So Christian love, it releases and recalls. Secondly, it loves the unworthy. Christian love, 
It loves those who don't deserve it and who don't earn it. Okay? So first, let's examine Judas. Judas, we know, is already toying with the idea of betraying Jesus. Look at verse 2. John writes, During supper, when the devil had already put it in to the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. So that, that thought, that desire has already been embedded within him. And then jumping to verse 21, it says this. Jesus already knew that Judas was going to betray him. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Jesus knows it's Judas. Yet, Jesus gets down on his knees, takes Judas' feet, and washes them clean. But the story continues, okay? And now everyone's confused when Jesus says, someone's going to betray me. Everyone's confused. So Peter, he turns to John, the beloved disciple, says, hey, John, ask, ask Jesus who it's going to be. And so look at verses 26 through 30. The story keeps on going. Jesus answered, it is he of whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Commentators say that Jesus' act of dipping the morsel and handing it to Jesus, culturally it would have been understood as an act of gentleness and courtesy. This is, this is Jesus' final gesture of affection towards Judas, the one who's going to betray him and hand him over to the authorities. Now, it's possible, you know, we know that God is sovereign and this has all been appointed, but in the mystery of things, on our side of things, it's possible that there was still hope for Judas at this point. Like Jesus, Satan had to only put that thought, that desire in his heart. It hadn't overwhelmed him and owned him yet. But then here, Jesus, with his hand of affection extended, that's when Judas surrendered himself to Satan. D.A. Carson, again, says this, Judas received the bread, but not the love. Instead of breaking him and urging him to contrition, it hardened his resolve. Yet, This is who Jesus loves and serves and gives one final act of friendly affection to. Talk about someone unworthy of love. How about loving your enemy? How does that sound? How does that sound? Loving someone who uh, has no intent on loving you in return. How does this sound? Honoring somebody who just wants to dishonor you completely. Loving someone who, in their heart, wants nothing but your downfall. How's that sound? Jesus loved that kind of person. And listen, he loved with no resentment. He loved with no bitterness. He loved with no hesitation. Nothing about Jesus shows us that he had any ill will towards Judas knowing he'd be spurned, knowing he'd be betrayed, he still loved to the end. He loved Judas, who was unworthy, but also Peter is unworthy. Fast forward to verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. (laughs) Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Again, Jesus knows what's going to happen. Jesus knows that Peter, probably his best friend in this whole group, is going to turn his back on him and betray him in his most desperate moment. 
Now, here, think about this with me. <laughs> Peter uh, always is, is uh, doing something boisterous. He's always like peacocking. So Peter, he's refusing to have his feet washed here in the story, you remember? He refuses. He doesn't want Jesus to touch his feet. He's rebuked Jesus before for talking about dying. Later on, in that garden, when Jesus is handed over to the authorities, Peter's the one who takes out his sword and cuts off that guy's ear. Like, Peter's always the one who's ready to go, who's always showing his allegiance to Jesus, who seems to be in it for Jesus. Yet, when the rooster crows the third time, Peter will have denied Jesus in that courtyard while Jesus is handed over to the enemies about to be thrown in jail and be killed. What changed for Peter there? What changed? He's been so defiant all along, so strong all along, but then he caves. Peter's moment of betrayal shows what's been in the center of his heart all along, and it's not loyalty to Jesus. Once Jesus is arrested and as good as dead, and this whole reason he's been following Jesus is now over, it's done away with, there's no longer any benefit for Jesus, for Peter to take these strong stands. There's no longer a king of the Jews to protect. There's no longer a kingdom to preserve. And so he's a fickle friend who's not loved Jesus, but he thought Jesus stood for, not Jesus himself. Fickle friend, flaky friend, but Jesus washed his feet. One more detail in the story that shows us who else is unworthy. Remember Jesus announces someone's going to betray him. Look what happens in verse 22. The disciples, that means all of them, all 12 of them, okay? They looked at one another uncertain of whom he spoke about. And they started asking one another, who is this? Who could it be? Peter said, who is it? To John. It says they were uncertain of who he spoke. Like Judas wasn't a clear candidate. It wasn't obvious to everybody that it was Judas. What does this show us? And commentators generally agree that what this means is it could have been any of them. <laughs> like none of them are so loyal to Jesus, so true and steadfast and sincere in their love for him that they could not possibly fit this category of somebody who might turn on him. Each and every one of them might have been that person, could have been that person, had potential to be that person, yet Jesus washes their feet. Jesus shows us that Christian love is not earned. Nobody has to earn your love. We don't serve in order to bargain for ourselves anything in return. How many of us in here have given up on a friend who's just exhausting? I'm sure all of us have struggled with that at least. How many of us have stopped loving someone because there was no reciprocation? There just wasn't anything in return. Here's the truth of the matter. Jesus loves traitors. Jesus loves bad friends. Jesus loves flaky people. He reminds them of the standard. He's showing them what true love is. It's not like he enables them to live in this lie, but as he loves them, he does not carry any resentment or anger within him. So Christian love, Jesus' love teaches us this, that we don't get to write people off. We don't get to get tired of people. We don't get to just shrug people off and close them out of our life just because they're difficult, especially in the family of God, especially one another. Christian love, it's for the unworthy. Now, that's, that seems pretty hard, right? To love someone who might not reciprocate, to love someone who hasn't earned it and doesn't deserve it. So the question obviously is, what's gonna, how is that going to be possible? 
How are we going to be able to love someone like that? Thirdly, Christian love is empowered by the gospel. It's empowered by the gospel. Verse 4, go back there with me. And again, we're turning over every part of the story, examining what Christian love is and all of its characteristics. It says Jesus rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments. And taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin, began washing the disciples' feet and wiping them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said, Lord, do you wash my feet? Like Peter's repulsed. This is taboo behavior. He scandalized that Jesus, his Lord and his teacher, would do such a thing. So Jesus responds and says, what I am doing to you, you do not understand now. But afterward, you will understand. Now afterward, like the event Jesus is talking about there, is not this foot washing. He says, you'll understand this foot washing after something happens, which is his death on the cross. After the event of the cross, Peter will finally get it. He'll understand what Jesus is doing. Verse 8, Peter refuses again. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share in me. So now here's what Jesus does. Okay, this is interesting. Bear with me here. This is detail, okay? Jesus is now going to use this physical act of washing feet to teach Peter and us a spiritual reality, a spiritual lesson, okay? The words no share, he says you have no share in me, that's rabbinic language to talk about eschatological blessing. Essentially, that's salvation language. What he's saying here is, Peter, unless you let me wash you, you can't take part in my salvation. You can't have my salvation. So Jesus' act of feet washing. It's symbolic of the salvation he's about to bring about in his death. And if you're not washed, truly washed, if you're not cleansed, you have no share in him. Now listen, this act of Jesus getting on his hands and knees and washing feet, it's like the hallmark picture of Christian love. Like people who aren't even in the church or who grew up in the church know about this story because it's so popular. But here's the thing, this act of radical love it's just a little, little version of the greater thing. This points to the greatest, greater act of love, Jesus' death on the cross for us. So are you ready to make the commitment today to living a life of love, to loving like this, to loving the vulnerable, those who don't deserve it? then you need to feel the weight of God's mercy. You need to be washed by the cross. You need to be washed by the blood of the Lamb. That's the only way you're going to actually be empowered to enter into this kind of life. To begin this kind of life and commit to it, you need to feel the full weight of what Jesus has done for you. He died in your place for your sake so you could be reconciled to the Father. You need to feel the full weight of that if you're going to make this commitment. That's what Jesus is showing us here. That this act, it points to the gospel, to something beyond itself. But listen, the gospel, it doesn't just like send us into this commitment and help us begin this commitment. The gospel also sustains us as we walk farther and farther into this commitment of Christian love. Look at verses 9 and 10. Now Jesus, he's going he's gonna to adjust the metaphor a little bit. Okay, He's going to adjust this symbolic act a little bit. He says in verses 9 and 10, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Bathe me. I want a full bath, he's saying. Jesus said to him, 
The one who has bathed does not need to wash. That's Jesus' reference to salvation. If you've already been saved, united to Jesus, washed in the blood of the Lamb, you don't need to be born again again, right? It's happened once, but look what he says. You don't need to be bathed except for his feet. You are clean, but not every one of you. So he says your feet only need to be washed in this, in this instance. What he's saying here is you've been saved. You've been cleansed by the blood, but you still need to be purified. You still need to be set apart and consecrated, sanctified. The gospel, Jesus' death in our place, sustains our love, empowers us to keep going for the rest of our life. The gospel, it doesn't just save us, it sustains us. All in all, Jesus' act of washing feet is more about the gospel than it is about washing feet. The washing of his disciples' dirty feet points our attention to the washing of regeneration by the Spirit and the continual sanctification we experience by the, the Spirit. So listen, when we take the gospel in and believe the gospel and then let it linger in our hearts, we are empowered to give and give and give and give the rest of our life because we're loved, loved, loved so much. That's what the gospel does. It sets you into this life of love. Has anyone ever given you an unexpected gift that was just so remarkable and amazing that it left you speechless? Like, like you were indebted and inclined towards that person like for the rest of your life, but that sense of indebtedness, it's not out of guilt, but out of love and thanks. Has that ever happened to you? Someone extravagantly has loved you or blessed you in such a way that you just feel indebted to them for the rest of your life, but a happy indebtedness? I think of Rebecca, and she's not here today because our kids are sick, so I don't get to, she's not going to be embarrassed until she listens to this later. But like af after we had Nora, so we had Harper and we had Nora, we brought her home, and we're just there with a newborn baby, all four of us, just like enjoying this amazing moment of a growing family. And I looked to Rebecca, and I just realized none of this is possible without her. She carried this life and then brought this life and she has made my life so rich. Oh my goodness. I, I remember turning her saying, babe, you've made my life so rich. I'm a rich man because of you. I feel indebted. I feel so infinitely indebted to her for the rest of my life. I want to love her. I want to be a good husband. I want to serve her. I want to protect her and lead her. I want to do all those things for her, but it's not because I feel guilty. It's not because I'm crushed by the weight of this you know, debt. It's because of what has been done for me. I feel inclined, <laughs> happily indebted for the rest of my life to love. That's what the gospel does. <laughs> it saves you. So you're like, wow, this is what we should be living life. And then it continually sustains you. So you're like, wow, this is how I'm going to live the rest of my life. Happily. Christian love. It's empowered by the gospel. Lastly, it authenticates your discipleship. Christian love, it proves that you are truly one of his. Verses 12 through 17. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. 
For I have given you an example, an example, that you should also do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is no greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Jesus says, this, this foot washing here, this is now the new standard. I'm calling you to rise to this kind of Christian love, this radical love. This is the standard from here on out. This is what my followers do. And remember, this foot washing, it points to the cross. This really is more about the cross than anything else. So Christian love, it's not just socially awkward. It's not just highly costly, but it's also extremely sacrificial. Death to self. There's social, physical, emotional cost here. So as he went, so we go. Jesus sets the standard, tells us to follow him. Now, here's what I love about Jesus. He sets the standard by his own action. Okay? Jesus could have just said, do this. Here's the description. Here's what you ought to do. But no, Jesus sets the standard by his own physical action. Isn't it wonderful that we have a God who meets the standard that he expects? It's not just lip service. It's not cheaply said. He really means it because he does it. God is not asking us to do anything he hasn't already done. That's a leader worth following. So now we have to follow. So if we have reservations, if we have excuses and hesitations, then we haven't understood the scandal of the gospel and the humility of God. No servant's greater than his master. No messenger is greater than the one who sent him. The gospel, it strips us of all our hesitations and excuses. So I know this means that your love towards others might be awkward. It might be strange. It might be hard and it might be costly, but that's no excuse anymore, because as he went, so we go. He's not asking us to do anything he hasn't already done. And now pay attention now to the primary object of our love here. He says you are to love who? Primarily, one another. He's talking to the disciples here, the 12, which of course are the representation of the church from here on out. They're the seed of the church. Jesus is saying here, this radical Christian love, it should be here. It should be to one another. Now, sometimes it's easier to love people out in the world, isn't it? It just is. It's harder to love people in the church family. And why is that? It's because we get in deep with one another. When we see all the, all the bad stuff. We see all the ugly stuff. But also at the same time, we hold each other to a very high standard. There's going to be lots of failures. Lots of frustrations, lots of offenses, lots of disappointments. But our charge, God's charge, is to love one another. And I think it's really wise of God that he sets up this institution and creates this family where our love is going to be tested time and time again so it's sharpened and so it's matured. It's easy to love people every now and then. It's hard to love people you're in community with. And so if you're a follower of Jesus and you love like this, it authenticates, proves that you are truly his. And this authentication, this validation of your discipleship, it doesn't just um, 
prove something about you, it also, in that, comforts you. There's a great comfort in following through on this. You'll notice in verse 17, Jesus says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Blessed are you. Now, the word blessed in your Bible in your New Testament is the word makarios, and uh, commentators generally agree that that word, it's a pronouncement or a declaration about somebody. It's like an observer would be seeing you, and they'd say, makarios are you, blessed are you. And that word can be translated as happy, it can be translated as flourishing, it can be translated as joyful. But what, is, what, what Jesus is saying here is if you love like this, and it's proven to your own heart that you're his, you are going to be in this state of being of blessedness, happiness, and joy, and flourishing. Why is that? Why, why does the confirmation that we are his bring about this state of blessedness all over you and in your life? It's because what's spiritually true of you becomes personally true of you, right? Like you are loved by God. You are delighted in by God. You are his chosen one. That abstract idea, when we love and it's proven that we are his, it gets reinforced deep down into our bones and assures us that yes, that idea that you're loved and delighted in by God, it's more than an idea, it's a reality. It's who you are. It's who you are. What's objectively true becomes subjectively true. What's theological becomes real. But also, one last thing here, this authentication of your discipleship through your love, it serves as a powerful, powerful witness to the world. Look at verses 34 and 35. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Early church father Tertullian uh, recorded what it was like in the early church, what they commonly experienced in their day. And the Roman soldiers would look at the Christians who were in community with one another, who would care for one another when they were on the mend, who would give their money away, who would, who would invite them into their homes and be hospitable, who, who would just care for one another, meet each other's needs. The Roman soldiers would see this, and they would literally mock the Christians saying, see how they love one another. Like that was a mockery and a jest towards Christians. Look at this radical love. But you know what happened? And we've talked, I've said it before. This love conquered the very Roman Empire. <laughs> and only a few hundred years after Jesus' resurrection, Christianity becomes the national religion of, of, of the empire. Emperor Constantine had to put a stamp on, on Christianity to begin to manage it because it was so out of control. Christian love, when followed through on, is a powerful witness to the watching world. You know, the world right now, it's so unforgiving. Everyone hides their weaknesses and their mistakes out of 
fear of being found out, fear of being blacklisted, but the church is charged to be the place where we can be both known and loved. And we have that kind of synergy of love here in this community. All in time, the watching world begins to take notice and is attracted, magnetized into what's going on here. Christian love, the act of it, authenticates our discipleship by proving that we are actually His, by proving to our hearts how amazing God's love is, and proving to the world that what we have is real. So, Jesus has made clear what God's will is through this standard of love, but He also wills what He commands. He will help us do what He is charging us to do. We covered a lot of points today, several points today. Christian love is radical. We do it by releasing and recalling. We do it by loving the unworthy. We do that from the power that's within the gospel until it authenticates to us and the watching world that we are his. So now I want to end just by asking some questions for you to consider. Just asking these questions for you to consider. Husbands and wives, how can you serve one another? Parents, how can you serve your children? Children, how can you serve your parents? Friends, how can we serve one another? Who is God calling you to love right now? Do you have that person? Do you have that name, that picture, that person's face in your mind right now? Who is God calling you to love? Is there some pride that you need to swallow and forgive somebody. In this church family, is there someone God has put on your heart to love and serve? Is there a person who you know needs love and friendship right now? What does a love that is as radical as foot washing and dying look like right now in your life? Let's close with verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world of the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them till the end. And let the same thing be said of us, that we loved to the end. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you help us live a life of love. You help us, God, move out to those who are in need, who are hurting, and who are lonely. To give encouragement, to help meet needs, and to be a friend. So, Father, I pray that you would have put conviction in our hearts today, put a person in our hearts and minds today that we can love more faithfully, more truly, more radically. And, God, we're thankful that this standard of love which you command us to and call us to, you have met yourself. And God, I pray that the gospel, your death in our place, your love for us would be so real to us that we would feel catapulted into the world, catapulted into relationships, pushed into this community to love one another. We pray these things in your name. Amen. For more information about Citizens Church, please go to citizensannapolis.com.